Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 107, Joseph Goldstein on the benefits of long-term practice. Joseph Goldstein, founder of the Insight Meditation Society, joins us to discuss the unique benefits of long-term practice and the emerging future of Western Buddhism. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks listeners. This is Ryan Olke, and we're coming to you from our new studio in Boulder. It's really shiny, smells a lot like paint, mm-hmm. but uh, hopefully we'll stay conscious and, and in tune with our special guest that we have today. And of course, with me is Vince Horn. Yeah, I'm here today with Joseph Goldstein. Little introductions needed for some Buddhist geeks out there, but I'll say a little bit for those that may not have heard of Joseph. He's one of the founding members of the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. And he's one of the original founders of the Insight Meditation Movement, along with Sharon Salzberg and Jack Kornfield and some others. Today, we're going to be talking with Joseph about long-term practice. One of the things that he's been really involved with at the Insight Meditation Society, and now at a retreat facility called the Forest Refuge, long-term practice of a month or several weeks or even several months at a time. Joseph, I was wondering if you could share with us some of the reasons that in your teaching career you've emphasized these long periods of unbroken silence and unbroken practice. Well, I think it begins with a couple of basic assumptions. The first being something very simple, which is that we're all looking to be happy in one way or another. You know, and whether we call it happiness or we call it peace or we call it love or we call it fulfillment, we're all looking for that sense of some kind of completion in our lives. So what follows from that is where do we find that? You know, and one of the great you know, gifts or offerings of the Buddhist teachings is that he points out to us that the place to look for this is in our own minds. You know, and when we say mind here, it's really important to understand mind, not so much in the Western meaning of it, because we tend to think of the mind as being very heady or intellectual, but when we use mind in the Buddhist sense, it really means mind-heart. You know, it means consciousness and everything that's contained within it, thoughts and feelings and emotions and intuitions and silence. So when we say mind, it's really that sense of big mind. You know, so the Buddha pointed out, if we're looking for happiness or fulfillment, the place to look for it is in our own minds. This itself is a tremendous uh, discovery, you know, because I think most people, especially in our culture, are looking for this kind of happiness or fulfillment in things outside. Our culture is quite advanced in providing different ways to distract ourselves in the outside world. Mm -hmm. And we don't so often turn our attention back to our own minds to look. So that's the first assumption that, you know, we really need to understand that the practice is about looking in. So then once we do that, and this is, this is quite 
a revolutionary discovery even within the first few minutes of meditation practice. I remember I was back when I was in the Peace Corps in the, in the 1960s and first getting interested in meditation. The first time I ever sat was just for five minutes and something amazing happened. And it wasn't that I had any great enlightenment experience, but even in those first five minutes, I saw that there was a way to look into the mind as well as looking out through it, which is what I had been doing all my life. Mm. You know, so it was, it was kind of like turning in place and turning the attention inward rather than outward. Discovering that there is actually a systematic way to do that was revelatory to me. Mm. You know, it's tremendously exciting. Uh, I got so excited, I started inviting my friends over to watch me meditate. <laughs> because, because I was just so thrilled by the possibility. Uh, of course, they didn't come back too often. <laughs> but then I developed a whole career based on that. Uh, so that's the first, that's kind of the beginning understanding that, you know, if we're looking for happiness, we're looking for peace or for love, you know, however we describe it to ourselves the place to look is within ourselves and mm-hmm. that there is a way to do this. So then comes the second big discovery that it's not just a question of recognizing that there is this quality of mind, big mind, and that we can be aware of it, but that it has many forces at work within it. You know, forces for good, forces for harm. We're the creature of many different kinds of habits of mind some which are onward leading for us and some which are destructive. You know, so we're all this mix of qualities and tendencies and habits. So then we begin to understand meditation not only as a recognition of the nature of our minds or the fact that there is an awareness, you know, that we can tune into, but also the very important understanding that this mind of ours needs to be trained. And it's precisely this aspect of training that leads us to the importance of seeing the importance of some long-term disciplined practice. And it's not so different than really learning any skill, whether it's in sports or music. You know, we can know that there's a piano and hit a few keys and understand, yeah, we can make music out of this. But to really become skilled takes discipline, takes, takes an ongoing practice or learning a sport, you know, whatever it may be. Training our minds is exactly the same way. Um, so that's, that's kind of the foundational understanding of why long-term practice is important. The shorter retreats help us with understanding the nature of awareness and seeing what's going on in our minds, you know, beginning to get a little sense of understanding of what our patterns are it's the longer-term practice which, over time, really helps effect the transformation of those habits. So that's why I really appreciate both myself and for the people I've worked with, you know, the value of sustained practice. Gotcha. And I was wondering, I, I'm just thinking to, to the Tibetan tradition where they have the three-year, three-month, three-week, and so on retreat, is this also common in the Theravadan tradition to have long-term practice of some sort? Uh, in the Theravada tradition, the traditional retreat in Asian countries, you know, in countries like Burma or Thailand, 
uh, generally the monks or the monastics, the monks and nuns, will go on a rains retreat, mm. which is usually the a period of three months. So that's generally the the time frame. Of course, there are you know particular practitioners who go off on even longer retreats, but mm-hmm. the traditional way of doing it would be to do a rains retreat each year. And so we've kind of incorporated that idea, you know, as we've brought the Dharma to the West, uh, when we established our, our annual three-month retreat at IMS. Yeah, that's right. And when you're saying shorter retreats, just to clarify, you mean like weekend to week? It could be weekends, uh, nine-day, two-week, three-week. And just as an interesting sidelight, while it's true that long-term retreats have this special value, you know, and benefit in terms of the training aspect, one of the things I've noticed uh, over time is that, you know, many people in the West can't take that amount of time. You know, people are busy with their lives and responsibilities. And I have also noticed the same development, although it might be a little more gradual, if people do shorter retreats, but regularly. So that's another way that people can really deepen their practice. And what do you mean by regularly? Just to... Well, that could vary. Some people regularly means doing one retreat a year. Mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. might mean doing two or three retreats a year. We have some people coming to the Forest Refuge, which we can talk about a little later, who come for one week every month. Mm, and they just do that regularly. And it's amazing to see how their practice has deepened over time. Gotcha. And I'm assuming for these people that they have probably have a regular daily practice of some sort in yeah. between these periods. Yeah. Okay. That, that should go without saying. Right. It does, it does need to be said. <laughs> okay. Because it's not so easy. You know, it's, it sounds so simple, especially for people committed to Dharma practice. Oh, yes, I'll, I'll sit every day. I'll practice every day. But as we know, it, it's not always so easy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it is an important, it's an important aspect of deepening. And you just mentioned the Forest Refuge, which uh, on my first retreat, was, which was actually with you and a couple other teachers at IMS, you had just come out of a six-week retreat with Upandita and the opening of the Forest Refuge. And uh-huh. I was really excited to hear about this long-term retreat facility that you helped create that was about self-guided practice and about taking anywhere from a week to maybe even up to a year to yeah. practice intensively. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit about the Force Refuge and your vision behind it and how it operates now here in the world. Well, we first sort of envisioned uh, this facility, the Forest Refuge. It was back in the late 90s. And at that time, there was just a tremendous growing interest in Dharma practice and in meditation. You know, the courses were full and long wait lists. And as an organization, IMS was trying to figure out, well, what do we do now? How do we respond to this growing interest in the teachings? We had a a weekend meeting, you know, bringing together all the stakeholders Mm -hmm. uh, in the organization, and we were just bouncing around different ideas. Do Do we make the retreat center bigger and hold bigger retreats, offer different kind of courses, and in the course of that discussion, what, what rose to the top, you know, out of all the different views and opinions, was the felt need for a place where people could undertake undisturbed long-term practice. Mm-hmm. And this very much resonated with my own practice experience in India. 
when I first went to India, this was after I had been in the Peace Corps in Thailand, um, and I went to India to practice. This was in the mid-60s. There were no meditation courses. You know, I just met my teacher, my first teacher, uh, Manindraji in Bodh Gaya, and I was going to see my teacher, you know, once a day or maybe once every few days when he was in town. But other than that, I was on my own. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was following my own schedule of uh, just sitting and walking through the day. And I found that I really loved that way of practice. So when we were creating this vision of the Forest Refuge and a place for people to do longer-term practice, I hawkened back to those years and realized how much I loved that style of practice. Right. And so we created a facility that's you know, very beautiful and conducive for people to be in nature and be in silence where they have the support of some teacher interviews and a couple of talks a week. But other than that, there's no schedule there. And people just settle into their own rhythm. There are no bells going on and no group movements from sitting to walking. And it's very conducive to people finding their own rhythm in practice. Mm -hmm. So in that way, I think it fulfills really a, a great need. I think it would be important to say that it does require a certain level of experience in practice, a certain level of maturity in practice, mm-hmm. to have that kind of self-reliance. And so for people beginning, I think the structure of a retreat is much more important because it's very supportive. You know, where teachers are there all the time and there are group sittings and walking periods and a set schedule. This way of practice at the Forest Refuge is really for people who have done the former for several years, perhaps, and then want to move on to a more self-reliant kind of practice. Gotcha. So there's some sort of development between the more need for structure and then the kind of dropping away of that structure. Yeah. And sometimes people go back and forth. You know, people find benefit in both and they'll do some time at the Forest Refuge and then come back to a more structured retreat. So it can work that way as well. Gotcha. And I think you've touched on this, but we were, we were kind of wondering in the insight tradition as a whole, what other kinds of functions or purposes that the Force Refuge is now serving that maybe weren't being met before. I mean, one I'm, I'm thinking of is obviously you had done an annual three-month retreat, but there wasn't really an opportunity to do anything longer than that. I'm guessing that's well, one. We have had people come for longer than the three months, you know, for four months, six months, even several people have been there for a year at a time. So it provides that possibility. Mm. Another aspect that it's serving that has been really wonderful to see is that it's a very perfect venue for inviting some of the Asian masters to come and teach for extended times. And that's really been wonderful. We've had many of the great Theravada teachers, particularly from Burma, since that's the tradition I'm most familiar with, you know, come and teach there for two, three, four months at a time. Mm. What kind of teachers? Uh, like some of the well, Saida Upandita, who was who was one of my early teachers, has mm. been there, and Paul Oksayadao, who's another Burmese master who was just there for four months, mm. uh, who was teaching quite a different style of practice, you know, developing uh, the jhanas first and then deepening insight based on the jhanas or absorptions. Mm. Uh, we've had a Vietnamese teacher, you know, Venerable Kipapano, uh, different teachers, I notice that they tend to come in the summer too. Is there? Is there? Is that because yeah. Burma is so hot? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I think the winters would be a little hard for that. <laughs> the New England winters. It's about uh, 10 degrees out right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, that makes sense. For us, though, for, for Westerners, actually, I love being on retreat in the winter. You know, it's kind of the equivalent, in a way, of the range retreat because it's a very inward time here in New England. Mm. You know, and it's, so, it's easy to settle inside and go inward. In fact, I'm just about to start a seven-week retreat myself. Oh, nice. Are you doing that at the Force Refuge? I'm actually be doing it at home. Oh, cool. As a glowing reference for the Forest Refuge, I've been there a couple times, and uh-huh. and, and especially in the winters, like you're saying, and it's just a, such an amazing place to practice, and I definitely encourage anyone listening who's interested in exploring that kind of practice and feels ready for it, that that's a great place to do it, and the teachers are fantastic as well. Yeah, yeah. Great. So moving on to a slightly different topic, just wanted to point out that you've had a tremendous influence over the development of what we're calling the insight meditation tradition now, which I'm sure in the beginning there was no such thing. But I was wanting to ask, since you've had such a big influence over how it's developed, if you had any sense of how it might evolve in the coming years, given what's come in the past 30 so years? I know that's a big question, but... (laughs) it It is a little hard to predict. Yes. But I guess I basically see two main strands unfolding. And I think this is true not only within the Vipassana or insight uh, way of practice, but in, in most traditions, mm-hmm. spiritual traditions. I think in spiritual traditions as well as in other aspects of our lives, it seems to me that there is a liberal conservative spectrum of how we approach things. And in this regard, I'm not putting any hierarchy at all on those as one being better or not. You know, it's just a different way of approach. And so, for example, in the spiritual context, I think a conservative approach would be to stay quite closely within the boundaries of one tradition, of one lineage, perhaps even uh, one teacher, and really deepening the practice in that way. On the liberal side of the spectrum, it might be a little more eclectic in the sense that people are drawing from different traditions based on a foundation of going deep in one, but then being open to influences from other traditions. You know, and I spoke a lot about in the recent books, One Dharma, because I saw in the West that there were these two approaches and that they were both important, but that the more liberal approach of synthesizing different aspects of different traditions Mm -hmm. seemed to me something unique in terms of what was happening with Buddhism in the West. Mm -hmm. Many of the different traditions were meeting each other for the first time. Right. You know, in Asia, there's, there's a lot of isolation with regard to, for example, the Burmese or the Thai or the Tibetan or Japanese, Korean. The teachers from these traditions did not have an opportunity to meet and talk and practice. Yet they all come to the West, and practitioners here, many of them are getting taste and studying with different teachers. So it's been quite interesting and challenging to see, okay, how do, we, how do we make of this 
something that really is onward leading rather than just a big mess. That's one of the things that has been happening and will continue to happen over the years. We have many students in the Vipassana, the insight practices, who also study with Zen masters, who study with Tibetan teachers, and the reverse. So it's interesting just to watch that happening. I think it's most helpful when it's held in a spirit of good old American pragmatism, which means that we don't get fixated on or attached to views, but we really begin to look at our practice and our minds and the discipline of meditation and to see what works. What works, right. You know, what works to free our minds from the habits I mentioned earlier that cause suffering. What works to free our minds from greed, from ill will and judgment and fear, and what works to develop you know, the wholesome qualities of love and compassion and understanding. And when I saw that, when I saw that the teachings were not so much expressions of metaphysical truths, but that they were really skillful means to liberate the mind, then it became much easier to hold differences of approach in a greater context of unity. If we hold them as metaphysical absolute truths, then differences of expression become sources of conflict. You know, who's right and who's wrong? And of course, this is the history of religious dialogue for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And we see it played out in the world today, the tremendous conflict. Mm -hmm. I think there's another, there's really another way of holding all this that uh, makes for more unity and greater pragmatism mm-hmm. in terms of our own our own deepening understanding. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.